All right. Well, I'm going to kick us off because I know that we have miles to travel as always. Um, I am Dr. Will Fenton, Director of Scholarly Innovation at the Library Company of Philadelphia. Um, for those of you who may not know the Library Company, we were founded in 1731 by Benjamin Franklin. Uh, today we are a research library and we support all sorts of terrific scholars uh, through our research fellowship program uh, who are creating the journal articles and the books like we'll hear about tonight that really are helping shape fields of study. Uh, so we're delighted to support that. My only real call to action, because I always try to include one, is if you aren't already, join our email list. Uh, we are doing a lot of things other than fireside chats. We do seminars. We had our Juneteenth um, uh, big talk last week. And we have a lot more in store. So if you want to keep up to date with that, go to librarycompany.org, scroll to the bottom page and throw in your email address and we will keep you up to date. So with that, it is my pleasure to introduce our guest tonight. Uh, Dr. Tyson Reeder is an expert in early American or in early US foreign relations and state building. He's an assistant professor of history at the University of Virginia, where he serves as an editor uh, with the papers of James Madison. He is the editor of the Rutledge History of US Foreign Relations and the author of Smugglers, Pirates and Patriots, Free Trade in the Age of Revolution, the subject of tonight's Fires on Chat. He's currently writing a book called Foreign Intrigue, James Madison, Party Politics and Foreign Meddling in Early America. Well, that sounds evergreen here. Dr. Reeder was a program in early American economy and society uh, fellow at the library company in 2013. Thank you so much for joining us, Tyson. Yeah, thank you, Will. And I want to thank Will and uh, all of the good people at the library company for uh, having me here. And I want to thank everybody for joining us virtually. Um, I, we'll take the good with the bad with this pandemic. Uh, we can't meet in person, but I hope that means that we're able to get a, a broad geographical range of people who are able to join us. And uh, I'm pleased to be here. All right, well, in 1785, uh, Thomas Jefferson proposed that the US government send an ambassador to Portugal because in his words, our commerce with that country is very important, perhaps more so than with any other country in Europe. Uh, and that's a strong statement uh, about a, a small, today, relatively uh, less well-known nation about, of Portugal. Uh, and so that's one that's hard for us to imagine today. So what was it that made that commerce so important? Well, with Jefferson, uh, the answer should be obvious, and it was wine. So to put this into uh, perspective, I want to introduce you to Thomas Rich. Now, Thomas Rich was a down-and-out Philadelphia merchant who kept his business afloat by smuggling around the Atlantic. He's definitely one of the more colorful characters uh, that I met while I was working as a uh, Pease Fellow researching at the Library Company of Philadelphia and at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. And in late 1763, Thomas Rich proposed a smuggling scheme to the Lisbon firm of Parr and Bulkley. He proposed that they ship two or 300 quarter casks of wine on their joint account to William Street at Fayal, a small Portuguese held island in the middle of the Atlantic. Once the wine arrived at the island, he planned, Rich planned, to have it switched into a different bottom and to import it as Fayal wine. By doing that, he could avoid customs duties when the wine arrived in America because the British government exempted Fayal wine from import duties. But the Sugar Act jeopardized his plan. 
Parliament passed the Sugar Act in April 1764 to reduce smuggling. The act removed the exemption for Fayal wine. Parliament scheduled the new duties to take effect on September 29, 1764. So Rich needed to receive his wine from Parambokli by that date, or else his scheme would fail. Now, British naval patrols forced smugglers to take additional expensive steps to receive goods directly from Portugal as the imperial crisis ramped up in the 1760s. So in 1765, for instance, Rich again teamed with Parr and Bulkley to smuggle Lisbon wine into Philadelphia. A British Navy vessel had recently seized one of his ships that had carried contraband goods to the French port of Cayenne. And so he felt uneasy and he feared for the schooner Young Nancy, which was carrying the illegal wine from Lisbon. He asked the Lisbon firm to ensure the captain packed the wine in an undetectable manner. He cautioned Parham Bulkley not to mention the scheme in their correspondence here, ironically overlooking his own mention of the scheme in his correspondence, as, as you can see in this letter. Uh, now, three months later, um, he felt really nervous when the young Nancy still hadn't arrived. The ship eventually did come to port in the second week of August, but not without causing Rich anxiety in the meantime. As customs patrols tightened, smugglers found it more difficult to defy navigation laws. So let's sum up Rich's story by saying that he was not a fan of government oversight. Merchants such as Rich hoped that U.S. independence in 1783 had finally released them from British trade restrictions. So back to Jefferson in 1785. He predicted that Portuguese wines would always enjoy an almost exclusive possession, in his words, of the U.S. market, so long as the Portuguese government allowed the importation of enough American produce to purchase them. So to that end, in 1786, Jefferson and John Adams tried to negotiate a commercial treaty with Portugal that would allow Americans to send flour and wheat to Portugal and return with wine and fruit. But the Portuguese government had other plans. To protect domestic production, Portuguese officials denied their request to uh, send flour and other breadstuff to Portugal, and the Portuguese aborted negotiations. Uh, so, so what you're looking at in this slide is a copy of that treaty, and what you can see down this side, uh, down the English column, we have the appropriate signatures and seals, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, but on the Portuguese side of the treaty, you'll notice the signatures are conspicuously absent. Now, today it's hard to imagine Portugal as a vital commercial partner for the United States, and it's equally difficult to think that Americans would have despaired over its loss, but not so in the early Republic. The Philadelphia merchant Joseph Warren explained it best in 1785. Before the Revolutionary War, he said, the port of Lisbon consumed at least 150,000 barrels of flour annually from America and nearly all our superfluous wheat. The Portugal trade greatly increased our shipbuilding, was a standing nursery for seamen, furnished us with large and important supplies of bullion and facilitated remittances to other parts of Europe for all our importations. Hence, it is obvious unless we have free sales as usual, Lisbon, instead of being a benefit, will be attended with the greatest disadvantages to the ultimate destruction of merchants and the commerce of the United States. Portugal was important in its loss. The failure of this treaty making was devastating. United States free traders 
drew a tidy syllogism that equated independence with, from Europe with republicanism, republicanism with free trade, and free trade with prosperity. The American Revolution had introduced a paradigm that pitted American independence, republicanism, and free trade against European empire, monarchy, and trade restrictions. The U.S. minister in Lisbon, David Humphreys, believed that Portugal represented the worst tendencies of European monarchies. He could only imagine Portugal's vast wealth if not hampered by an unlimited monarchy, a mad queen, a foolish prince regent, a weak administration, an ignorant laity, and a bigoted clergy. So if you're asking David Humphreys, this is everybody that you have to blame for Portugal's downfall on the world stage. As U.S. Portuguese trade diminished and Americans began to associate Portugal with the most atrocious vices of European monarchies, many U.S. traders and politicians turned hopefully to its South American colony, Brazil. They assumed that if they secured free trade with an independent Republican Brazil, both countries would prosper. Jefferson and Adams had pressed the Portuguese government to open Brazilian markets to Americans. During the 18th century, British Americans had, had garnered a strong appetite for Asian goods, and Brazil produced many of the same commodities as the East Indies. In fact, Thomas Rich had conducted his own smuggling venture in Brazil. It ended in failure due to imperial restrictions. Americans pined for free trade with Brazil. Jefferson assumed correctly, however, that Portugal would not allow the United States to enter the empire's prized possession in the Americas. Many U.S. traders and authorities concluded that only smuggling or Republican revolution would give Americans access to Brazilian markets. By the late 1780s, both methods seemed feasible. While Americans pled with Portugal for free trade with Brazil, Brazilians clamored for freer trade with the world. Underground cabals formed with the intention to declare independence as had done the English Americans, as one revolutionary put it. English America was a, a term that Brazilians commonly used for, uh, for the United States. In 1786, three years before the French Revolution, a small contingent of Brazilians appealed to Thomas Jefferson for U.S. support in their quest for independence. So think about the day, three, again, three years before the French Revolution, uh, Thomas Jefferson's real first taste of exporting the American Revolution internationally uh, was actually with Brazil. Uh, we, we usually think of it in terms of being France, but um, th this, uh, again, three years before the French Revolution. Uh, in November, while Jefferson was in Paris as an ambassador, Jefferson received a letter from a Brazilian who wrote under the pseudonym of Vendek. The stranger revealed that he and his countrymen are resolved to follow the striking example that you have given us, in his words. He requested support from the United States and offered payment in silver. Intrigued, Jefferson arranged a secret meeting with the mysterious correspondent at Nîmes under the pretext of seeing the antiquities of that place. Once he arrived at Nîmes, Jefferson met José Joaquim Maí Barbario. You can try to say it five times real fast. Maí Barbario hailed from Rio de Janeiro, but he studied medicine at the University of Montpellier in France. He acted in concert with a small cohort of 12 Brazilian students who resided in Coimbra, Portugal, and who desired Brazilian independence. 
During his meeting with Jefferson, Maí Barbario stated the case for a successful revolution in Brazil. He assured Jefferson that in case of success, Brazilians would establish a Republican government disposed to import U.S. provisions, unlike the Portuguese. Jefferson explained that although the United States did not have the means to meddle in a civil war, and they hoped to cultivate good relations with Portugal, quote, a successful revolution in Brazil could not be uninteresting to us, which is a pretty classic Jefferson non-answer. Jefferson refused to jeopardize relations with Portugal over an undeveloped plot hatched by a small cohort of revolutionaries. But he left the meeting intrigued by the possibility of a Brazilian revolution. In May, he related the conversation to Secretary of Foreign Affairs John Jay. He insisted that however distant we may be, both in condition and dispositions from taking an active part in any commotions in that country, nature has placed it too near us to make its movements altogether indifferent to our interests and, or to our curiosity. United States officials did not carry their correspondence with uh, hopeful revolutionaries any further, but Jefferson revealed the anticipation that only an independent Republican Brazil could open the country's ports to the United States. For him, the Brazilian conspirators represented the promise that the Americas would follow the United States into a prosperous era of free trade and republicanism. Four years later, as Secretary of State, Jefferson sought intelligence about the possibility of Brazilian independence. In February 1791, the Senate confirmed David Humphreys as the first U.S. minister to Portugal, and Humphreys received his credentials in mid-March. Less than a month later, Jefferson sent him encrypted instructions to procure us all the information possible as to the strength, riches, resources, lights, and dispositions of Brazil. Humphreys responded favorably that Brazilian wealth was daily increasing and that the ties of attachment to Portugal, or I should say between Portugal and Brazil, are weakening. <clears throat> As to Brazil's relationship to Portugal, he insisted that the colonists have many causes of complaint and the government at home of apprehension that a separation must one day inevitably take place. Now, Jefferson didn't intend the U.S. government to aid Brazilian revolutionaries, but the report strengthened his anticipation of free trade with an independent Brazil. In his flirtation with Brazilian affairs, Jefferson demonstrated a growing supposition among Americans that revolution and independence would precede prosperous free trade between the United States and Brazil. He had learned by experience that the Portuguese monarchy cared little about a close commercial relationship with the United States. Although Americans rued the collapse of their trade with Portugal, by the 1790s, the Portuguese trade amounted to little without Brazil. If the colony could secure its independence and open its ports to U.S. commodities, Americans would hardly agonize over the decline of commerce with Portugal. What you'll be looking at here is just a, a map of some of the major trade areas in what we might call the U.S.-Portuguese Atlantic trade framework. By the late 1780s, Brazilian revolutionaries began to turn vague ideas of rebellion into concrete plans as a small cohort concocted what became known as the Inconfidencia Mineira, or the Minas Treachery, based off its location uh, off of the uh, rebels location in this area of Brazil called Minas Gerais. In 1788, 
the Viscount of Barbacena arrived as governor of the Brazilian province of Minas Gerais with instructions from the Portuguese government to enforce a per capita tax. In 1788, a small cadre of ringleaders plotted to rebel against the homeland and to establish Minas Gerais as an independent republic. A lieutenant called Chiradentes, he was a dentist, his, name, his nickname means tooth puller, uh, Chiradentes planned to assassinate and decapitate the governor. Another lieutenant colonel agreed to command his troops to stand down amid the tumult. He would ask the multitude what they desired, at which point Chiradentes would hoist the governor's bloodied head and demand the liberty of the people. Okay, so like many grand plans, they were thwarted by internal treachery. One of the group denounced the plot and his co-conspirators. In March, the governor suspended the tax to avoid rebellion, removing the catalyst that, that would allow the conspirators to incite a revolution. The Portuguese government arrested the plotters, tried them, and sentenced them to death. During the trial, Chiradentes took full responsibility for the scheme. The crown commuted the death sentence of the others to banishment and confiscation of their goods, but the government hanged and quartered Chiradentes, the lone casualty of the Inconfidencia Mineira. At the trials of the Minas conspirators, imperial officials worried that the U.S. example had a deleterious effect on the loyalty of Brazilian subjects. They learned that the defendants spoke with much pleasure and satisfaction as they were to the, on the establishment of that republic, meaning the United States. They also learned that the revolutionaries closely studied American state constitutions and the Articles of Confederation. Chiradenchis assumed that if Minas residents could establish an independent republic, they could surpass the opulence of Americans due to Brazil's wealth of natural resources. Perhaps as early as September 1788, he had received payments from merchants in Rio de Janeiro who asked him to report on the receptivity of Minas residents to the idea of Brazilian independence. One conspirator claimed that the, that the uh, merchants backed the planned revolution to obtain freedom of commerce and make an English America in Brazil. So these testimonies revealed the Portuguese authorities a very worrisome association with independence and free trade an association that appeared to emanate from the United States. So faced with this small but sinister independence conspiracy rife with allusions to the United States and free trade, Lisbon officials began to make greater concessions to discontented Brazilians during the 1790s. The Portuguese authorities adopted a strategy that would appease the Brazilian population but leave intact the basic commercial framework between the metropolis and the colony. So first, they loosened some of the strictures on intra-imperial commerce, so commerce within the empire, between, uh, between entities of the empire, especially in the African slave trade between Portuguese holdings in uh, Angola and Brazil. Second, officials strove to rein in foreign contraband to boost revenue. This dual approach of liberalizing free trade and yet clamping down on contraband protected the imperial commercial nexus and responded to some of the demands of Brazilians, all while dissociating liberalized trade from Republican revolution. Portuguese officials viewed liberalized trade as an economic expediency rather than an ideological virtue. Unlike Americans, they maintained their focus on the economic vitality of the empire and the monarchy, not on the right of individuals to trade with whom they pleased. 
In his belief that freer trade would strengthen the empire and monarchy, uh, the minister Sosa Coutinho inverted U.S. assumptions that empire must give way to free trade. Even as it relaxed commercial restraints, the court rejected U.S. free trade dogma. Appeased by the reforms, Brazilian traders disregarded American associations of republicanism with free trade. Colonists, Brazilian colonists saw little need to revolutionize and overthrow the monarchy as the Portuguese imperial economy increasingly centered on Brazil. The court did set the empire on a sounder financial base by liberalizing trade, but it did not quell the desires of many Brazilians to do business outside the imperial nexus. To that end, Brazilians counted on smuggling as a commercial mainstay into the 19th century, and Americans were happy to oblige. They controlled much of the contraband trade. And Portuguese authorities worried that U.S. Republican principles could yet creep into the Brazilian population. After the Portuguese court rebuffed U.S. attempts to gain access to Brazil in the 1780s, U.S. traders resorted to contraband trade with Brazilians. Traders around the Atlantic had tried to infiltrate Brazilian markets through smuggling since really the early 18th century, but in the minds of Portuguese officials, U.S. contraband posed a distinct threat because it represented ideologies of free trade and resistance to authority peculiar to Republican government. In February 1801, the commander of the Brazilian squadron of the Portuguese Navy, Donald Campbell, it, it's the easiest Portuguese name you're going to hear all night. He was Scottish which, uh, by origin, which explains it. Uh, Campbell worried that the innumerable vessels that appear in these coasts under false pretexts to conduct contraband trade. Portuguese officials worried that Americans' ideological connection among free trade, republicanism, and independence would permeate the Brazilian population along with their illicit goods. In April 1801, Campbell described smuggling as, quote, hostile to harmony and even the existence of subordination. Smugglers favored private networks over the law, according to Campbell. They threatened the order and deference by which imperial states governed. Americans acted as the principal perpetrators, men that have the principles of republicanism firmly engraved in their hearts, he griped. Five months later, he warned that ideas of Brazilian independence had gained traction among the colonial population and sub-segments celebrated U.S. independence. He worried that U.S. smugglers imported what he called licentious liberty in addition to contraband. By February 1807, the Prince Regent, Don Juan, directed Brazilian officials to act more vigilantly and to punish smugglers with great severity but he didn't have to worry much longer. Events soon changed the entire commercial framework of the Portuguese empire. That year, Napoleon did for Americans what Thomas Jefferson had failed to do, force the Portuguese government to open Brazil to foreign trade. I mean, okay, it wasn't exactly Napoleon, but, but I'll explain. So in late 1807, Napoleon's troops invaded Portugal and compelled Don Juan to flee for Rio de Janeiro along with the entire court. This is a picture of the scene in Lisbon as they were leaving. And to flee beyond Napoleon's reach. Napoleon might occupy Lisbon, they reasoned, but he could not conquer the empire. A few weeks later, the crown declared Brazilian ports open to foreign vessels. Although compelled by dire circumstances, 
the decision further validated the assumptions of many Brazilian officials and traders that monarchy and free trade did not stand in inherent opposition. As a U.S. consul in the Brazilian port of Salvador, Henry Hill viewed the opening of Brazilian ports as potentially momentous, but he believed that a prosperous trade depended on two preconditions. First, the United States needed to procure a liberty of trade with the Brazils on a liberal footing. If U.S. traders obtained low duties and open navigation in Brazil, according to Hill, they could greatly enrich and extend our commerce, he thought. With beneficial trade agreements, the United States could secure the second precondition for profitable commerce in Brazil, preventing a British monopoly on Brazilian markets. Hill suggested that instant overtures from the United States could open a lucrative trade with Brazil and even muscle out the British. Unfortunately for Hill, Brazilian ports opened at a most inauspicious time for U.S. merchants. Just one month before Brazil's ports opened to foreign commerce, Congress passed the Embargo Act, prohibiting exports to foreign nations. This is an image of Thomas Jefferson and James Madison restraining a ship at the orders of Napoleon as their detractors accused them of, of following uh, of following foreign orders, taking the lead from foreign governments. And I love what the artist decided to title this, uh, Thomas Jefferson teaches economical principles to his mad son. Madison, mad son. Okay, you get it. <clears throat> so since the early 1790s, British and French warfare had imperiled US vessels. After 1805, for reasons we don't really have time to discuss here, the two empires began to blockade neutral U.S. trade with enemy ports. Now president, Jefferson hoped the embargo would demonstrate the importance of U.S. commodities to European economies and compel respect for the republic's right to neutral commerce. Edward Livermore, a Massachusetts representative and, and critic of the president complained that the trade to Brazil, which it will be our own fault if we do not participate in, will be an immense acquisition. Unfortunately, according to Livermore, the embargo threatened legal commerce to Brazil before it could begin. Senators James Lloyd of Massachusetts and Samuel White of Delaware insisted that Britain would simply turn to Brazil and the West Indies to supplant U.S. tobacco and cotton. Livermore agreed with their assessments and assumed that the embargo would allow Brazil to replace the United States as providers of cotton to Great Britain. A Liverpool firm maintained that London increased cotton imports by 37,000 bags from 1807 to 1808. Most of them came from Brazil. A firm in Manchester informed their U.S. correspondents that in response to the U.S. prohibition, they imported cottons from Brazil and would, quote, make the Americans pay for the embargo. Henry Hill confronted the irony that the embargo allowed the British to monopolize the very trade he hoped would liberate the United States from British commercial dominance. He could only hope that Quote, the embargo will distress the enemies of our neutral rights and commerce as much as it does myself. U.S. free traders learned that a republic could repress freedom of commerce with greater ruthlessness than monarchies. In the same moment that the Portuguese monarchy opened Brazilian ports to foreign nations, the U.S. republic had shut its doors to trade 
and to, uh, to allowing its traders to send goods to foreign nations. Although the Non-Intercourse Act of 1809 reopened U.S. commerce to all regions that respected U.S. neutral rights, and that included Brazil, Americans did not easily recover from the head start allowed to the British in South America. In 1810, the Virginia Congressman Thomas Newton contemplated the embargo and lamented, as to the flattering anticipations of commercial advantages with the new empire of Brazil, they vanished like a dream. Now, Britain had flexed its commercial muscle in Brazil, but Americans hoped that perhaps Brazil could yet integrate into an American system of republicanism and free trade. Between 1809 and 1815, U.S. observers delayed rather than abandoned that vision. Despite the tentative commencement of U.S.-Brazilian trade, Americans increased their commerce with Brazil until it became the center of U.S.-Portuguese Atlantic trade by the end of the 1810s. Between 1816 and 1822, U.S. merchants made that shift as revolutionary fervor spread from Spanish America to Brazil. In the midst of such fervor, many Americans reanimated their hope that Brazil would eventually constitute an independent republic that favored U.S. commerce. In 1817, Republican insurgents promised that very possibility in the northeastern Brazilian province of Pernambuco. So um, from, from this map, we're up in this region with Recife as its main port. Many Americans viewed the revolt as the commencement of Brazil's future as a fellow republic and reliable free trade partner. Sympathy translated into support as merchants shipped provisions and munitions to Brazilian revolutionaries. Attracted in the short term by high prices and low duties, Americans hoped that in the long term, Pernambuco would throw off the Portuguese monarchy to foster free and prosperous commerce between republics. By the middle of the year, they watched their hopes evaporate once again as the Portuguese monarchy blockaded Recife and quashed the rebellion. If Americans saw in Pernambuco the promise of Brazilian commerce and republicanism, they also witnessed the fragility of that promise. The Portuguese government had quashed the rebellion in northeastern Brazil by mid-1817, but its problems on its southern border in a region known as the Banda Oriental, modern-day Uruguay, had just begun. In 1816, the Portuguese government had ignited a four-year conflict with South American revolutionaries after it sent forces to invade the Banda Oriental. The caudillo, or military leader, José Gervasio Artigas, led troops against the Portuguese inv invaders in defense of republicanism and political autonomy in the region. Artigas provided Americans with privateer commissions in 1817 that would allow them to prey on Portuguese and Spanish ships. The commissions ostensibly authorized the bearers to prey on those ships, but Artigas's government lacked recognition from the community of nations. Commissioned by a government of such precarious international status, Americans who accepted those commissions inhabited a sort of shadowy legal space between pirate and privateer. Now, many Americans cheered Artigas's Republican movement and his defiance of the Portuguese monarchy. Uh, one editor of a newspaper for ex uh, hoped, for example, that before long, a sufficient number of Republican pirates commissioned by General Artigas will repay the king for the unjust and unprovoked attack that he has made in the Banda Oriental. Not all Americans were so pleased. 
Artigas's privateers frequently captured Portuguese slave ships and smuggled the slaves into the United States and the Caribbean, and they violated U.S. neutrality laws. With their disregard for state authority, they damaged the U.S. government's reputation among European nations. In 1818, U.S. officials hoped to sign a commercial treaty with the Portuguese Empire. Officials in Rio de Janeiro refused to make an agreement until the U.S. government repressed the piracies from its ports. U.S. administrators labored to prove that the United States could take a rightful place among the community of nations by honoring its international treaties and being able to restrain its citizens from private violence. So to that end, they began to pursue privateers, the pirates slash privateers, more tenaciously in criminal courts. They began to, um, they, they passed laws that stymied the movement of privateers into U.S. ports after 1819. They significantly curtailed illicit, illicit privateering. And they revealed in their efforts the difficulty of harmonizing U.S. ideals of hemispheric republicanism with the realpolitik of international negotiations. In their quest for national legitimacy, they could ill afford to alienate European monarchies, including the Portuguese monarchy that resided in Brazil. The minister, the Portuguese minister, José Correa da Serra, had grown exhausted with the U.S. democratic process during his struggle against Artigan pirates. And he concluded that the unruly republic did not merit a commercial treaty with the Portuguese empire. In November, he returned to Portugal and the empire ceased negotiations. Just before he departed for Portugal, Correa da Serra visited his old friend and ours, Thomas Jefferson. The minister vented to the aging former president his disgust with America's, Americans' piracies. Jefferson hoped that the minister would, quote, distinguish between the iniquities of a few plunderers and the sound principles of our country at large. He hoped further that Correa de Seja would promote the advantages of a cordial fraternization among all the American nations and the importance of their coalescing into an American system of policy totally independent of Europe. Jefferson had not altered his opinion much from more than 30 years prior when he hoped that a revolutionary Brazil would prove beneficial to U.S. commerce. Even then, he was unwilling to upset the Portuguese monarchy by promoting revolution in Brazil. With particular forcefulness, however, he condemned revolutionary elements in Brazil. The man who had envisioned an empire of liberty across the Western Hemisphere revealed a growing notion among Americans that they may have to settle for a sovereign kingdom in the Americas. Brazilian independence only reinforced that assumption. In 1821, Don Juan returned to Lisbon and exposed the empire to a crisis of sovereignty between Brazil and Portugal. The rupture culminated with a Brazilian declaration of independence in 1822. By the time the US government recognized Brazilian independence, US officials realized that rather than transition to a republic, Brazilians would accept Don Juan's son, Don Pedro, as a monarch. By retaining a monarchy, Brazil exposed the flawed assumptions of U.S. traders that independence from Europe would lead inexorably to Republican commercial relationships defined by free trade among the Americas. Monarchists and Republicans alike had imagined Brazil and the United States as what they called the two rising Americas the two Americas, the two great powers of the Western Hemisphere, or brethren of the same family, as Jefferson called them. 
their fates appeared intertwined, inseparable. At the same time, their relationship remained unsettled and fraught with tension. They had followed distinct paths to independence and commercial freedom, which resulted in conflicting national narratives about monarchy, republicanism, and the future of the Western Hemisphere. Smugglers, pirates, and patriots had fractured empires, contested state power, and revolutionized Atlantic commerce. As the curtain fell on the age of revolution, however, Americans abandoned faith that the United States would lead the Americas into a new era of republicanism and free trade. By the time of the Civil War, they viewed Brazil as a fellow slave power rather than a sister republic. Thank you. That was excellent. Thank you so much. Um, all right. So I want to give folks um, a moment to submit their questions, uh, which means that they're going to be stuck with my silly questions, one of which is very elementary, and it comes from somebody who's not a political economist or anything like that. You brought, to, um, you brought that really interesting syllogism from the early republic of independence, republicanism, free trade, and prosperity, which would feel very much at home in our political discourse, at least up until, I don't know, 2016. I mean, like that was sort of the status quo of free trade, positive good, yeah. uh, not a zero sum game. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm curious to know if free trade is a stable term. Does it mean the same to folks in the early national period as it does today? And if so, yeah, that, how are they different? Yeah, that, that's a fantastic question. Um, they didn't mean the same thing to folks in the early Republic, even among their own contemporaries. People had different definitions of free trade. Um, and, and more or less, they were, they were questions of degree. Uh, so some said, well, free trade just need, means that neutral powers, powers who aren't at war with somebody, should be able to trade with anybody they want and not be stopped by you know, Britain or France. Um, others said that free trade could, should consist of low duties, you know, minimal restrictions, and others were absolute free traders. Free trade needs to be, um, needs to be um, completely open. It needs to be duty-free. We need to be able to access each other's, uh, you know, permeate boundaries, permeate borders, and have access to each other's markets around the Atlantic. Um, since you're bringing up comparisons from, from our day, though, um, something, something that contemporaries at the time, something that James Madison, in fact, argued strenuously for, that, and a phrase that they would recognize is, uh, I believe in in fair or free trade, but it has to be fair trade. Uh, you may recognize that that line. Um, and uh, James Madison, in fact, he part of the reason that he thought the United States needed a constitutional convention was because he wanted to conduct a trade war against Great Britain. And he said essentially the same thing. I want to have, uh, you know, I believe in free trade, but we need a constitution that allows the government to pass duties, import duties, so that we can retaliate against Britain. Um, so we, you know, I, I would argue that it, we in part live today with um, these notions of free trade, but fair trade, largely because James and, and trade wars, because James Madison uh, wanted a trade war with Britain. <laughs> That's so fascinating. Um, while, while we're on this topic, if you'll indulge me another question. Um, you mentioned that um, revolution and independence was seen as preceding um, free trade and prosperity. Is that right? Right. Mm -hmm. A commonly held assumption. What do people make of the Haitian Revolution in that context? 
Oh, that's a that's a fantastic uh, fantastic question. Um, in that in in that instance, a little messy. Paid, it's very messy, right? Absolutely. And and for those who may not have the background, in 1806, Thomas Jefferson uh, shuts down free trade, shuts down trade with Haiti. He cuts he cuts it off. Haiti is now a pariah in in you know a an official pariah as far as the U.S. government is concerned. Um, that really upset Federalists, and they used this language against the Jefferson administration. Um, the in in essence. Uh, Federalists in New England, who had a really strong economic stake in wanting to trade with Haiti, um, said we need access to we need access to Haiti, and they brought all sorts of arguments against the Jefferson administration of why Haiti uh, needed should be open to U.S. traders. Uh, but that was a very mess messy instance in which, for Jefferson, um, the fear of slave rebellions trumped his desire for revolution and free trade in the Americas. Funny how that works. Very. All right, so we've got a question from uh, Mark Valeri who asks, what is the relationship between the issues of embargo, diplomacy, smuggling, and, classic, and classical liberal Adam Smithian theory? He's still a little bit unclear on that. Okay, um, well, let me, uh, let me try to, to uh, list, list those things again. And, you know what we um we oh, have and I have one at a time. You know, so we have embargo, diplomacy, right. and smuggling on one side. Mm, I, okay, I got classic classical liberal. That's in quotes. Adam Adam Smith theory. Right. Yeah. Um, so it's it's in large part consists of uh, what I was describing earlier that the idea behind the embargo, that the US government and James Madison, he was Secretary of State, of course, at the time of the embargo. And I talked about Henry Hill, who you know, was pretty embarrassed because he, he went to Brazil, you know, hyping up American free trade ideals, American uh, you know, free trade and republicanism. And then of course, the Republic shuts down any trade with foreign nations. And so James Madison has to keep sending him letters saying, okay, just try to emphasize to Brazil that we're just doing this temporarily while we get respect from Great Britain um, and, and France, and then we'll open up trade again. You know, and again, he writes him several times saying, just, just let them know that this is temporary. This isn't our long-term policy. This is just a, a temporary expedient. And so it's again, James, James Madison really since 17, at least 1782 had just pined for a trade war with Great Britain. Mm -hmm. um, and the embargo was more or less the, the culmination of that. Um, <clears throat> and so uh, that was always in Madison's thinking. We want free trade, but if Britain isn't going to play along, if Britain is going to cut us off from the West Indies, if they're going to hike up duties in England, uh, then we need the power to enforce enforce uh, duties against Britain. But the impulse behind free trade, this, this Adam Smithian theory, was so strong in the United States by that time that they never passed a duty. They passed duties, Congress passed duties, but they were never sufficient to uh, hurt the British at all. Americans still continue to uh, bring in loads of British goods. Hmm. So sort of related to that, 
what is America seeking to bring in and what is it sending out? You had mentioned earlier, particularly with the Portuguese example, um, wine for flour and wheat. Um, what other commodities or raw goods are sort of, you know, uh, moving back and forth right now? Yeah. Well, so once once the conversation shifts, and th that's a good question uh, that I didn't address as far as Brazil is concerned, but as as the conversation in America shifts from Portugal to Brazil, uh, in Brazil, what they're looking for are things like hides, um, coffee, sugar. Uh, I mentioned Thomas Rich and his illegal venture to, to Brazil. Uh, and that was in 1763. And one of the things that he really wanted was uh, Brazilian gold. Uh, now, during the 1760s, Brazil was very, very enticing, especially to smugglers and pirates, uh, because uh, gold had been discovered in Minas Gerais, which I, like I had mentioned, um, and, and diamonds uh, were a large export from Brazil. And it really gave the Portuguese economy a sort of second wind in the early 1700s. Um, and so a lot of smugglers are looking, especially in North America, who were absolutely starved for specie. They, they were starved for hard coin cash. Um, and so Thomas Rich, when he was looking at smuggling to Brazil, he was hoping that Brazil would answer his, you know, his, his uh, specie deficiency. Hmm. Um, it, it didn't work out for him. There were just too many loops that even smugglers, you know, he was trying to not only smuggle stuff out of the Portuguese empire, but smuggle stuff into the British empire. And there were just so many loops for him to go through. Um, it, the, the voyage took uh, well over a year. Um, and, you know, he wrote his partner, you know, complaining, you know, I, I have no interest in this trade anymore. This is way too long. So people like Thomas Rich were very excited when they won independence and thought, well, this might be the chance that, you know, to open this new world of free trade and we'll have access to Brazil. And, and then, of course, the Portuguese stomped all of their hopes and dreams. And so they had to keep smuggling and, and pirating in Brazil. Hmm. Um. While uh, there's a lull, I'm going to ask another question, uh, particularly about, um, you know, resources. This is a low-hanging fruit kind of question. I saw that you had a, a great piece of correspondence from the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. I'm curious to know what, when you were crafting this book, um, what did you find at HSP? What did you find at Library Company? And um, where did you look to sort of find the bulk of your evidence? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So, so both the HSP and the library company have really fantastic resources for merchants in Philadelphia. And Philadelphia is a major part of this story, especially early on, because Philadelphians, uh, Portugal was really starved for um, wheat and flour. Now, I mentioned that they didn't allow Americans, United Statesians, we will say, to send wheat and flour to Portugal. But they did allow British Americans to send wheat and flour to Portugal when they were part of the British Empire. Um, and so in that instance, independence actually hurt Americans more than it helped them because all of a sudden, the, you know, they've lost the protection of the British Empire and, and Portugal feels no need to trade to treat with, uh, with uh, the United States. Um, but so to get back to your original question, though, a lot of uh, because Philadelphia was such a hub for breadstuffs, the provisions trade, wheat, flour, um, you know, other types of grains, um, the the 
personal records. Thomas, Thomas Rich has an entire series of his correspondence held at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. Um, the library company holds the records of, of Henry Hill, who was really engaged in the Portuguese Atlantic trade. Um, so those were, those were absolutely vital to accomplishing this work. That's great. So, I mean, these fireside chats are, I think, sort of definitionally retrospective. Like we're looking back at a project that's already like complete enough that people can talk about it. And I'm always excited to hear about a, a new project that's on the way. So I'd like to give you a minute just to tell us a little bit about this new book that you're working on. Where is it? You know, um, when can we expect it? it? Do you have a press lined up? And uh, how does it um, have continuities or discontinuities with this project? Uh, yeah, I'd love to. So the, to start off with the, just the continuities that, um, you know, I'm very um, well ingrained in the early U.S. foreign relations, uh, along with, you know, being able to, uh, I guess it just comes with the territory that I can speak French and Portuguese and Spanish. And so it just makes sense to be able to um, delve into records that maybe other historians of early America can't. So um, this book that I'm writing now uh, I, I'm an editor for the Secretary of State series for James Madison, and you cannot read his Secretary of State correspondence without recognizing that he was absolutely concerned that foreign governments would meddle in U.S. politics, turn Americans, try to turn Americans against each other, use their divisions to their advantage, and that in the, inst in, in the process, Americans would be hurt. And so... Reading that correspondence, um, you know, I, I mean, at first, you know, little little things would intrigue me, you know, little parallels that I would find, of course, to today's uh, political situation. Um, and and so the more that I found, though, you know, I kind of like file those away in the back of my mind and they just kept popping up until I said, OK, uh, there needs to be a book written about this. And so <clears throat> uh, what I'm what I'm looking at is going into the French archives, going into the Spanish archives, going into British archives and looking at what were these governments trying to do? How much of this was just American paranoia? How much of this was actually concerted plans on the part of these governments that said, hey, look, Americans are so disunited. They've split into a two-party system. We can use those parties against each other for our benefit. Um, <clears throat> and, and a lot of that happened. A lot of it was American paranoia. Um, but uh, foreign meddling in our politics and foreign governments exacerbating divisions among Americans is something that has been a, a, around with us for a long, long time. Um, I'm uh, currently in some of the early stages of writing. My agent and I are looking for a press, hopefully, to get it into contract uh, within the next uh, couple months. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for giving us a sneak peek of that, and or, or at least a preview, I should say. Um, <laughs> and uh, thank you for joining us. Um, I could tell by my lighting that we're coming up on eight o'clock and we're past the summer solstice. Uh, so that means that we need to wrap this up. Um, I wanna thank you again for joining us and telling us about your book. I will be sending out a, a follow-up email in the next week that includes a link to that book in case you folks wanna pick up a copy, um, as well as a recording of this for anyone else who you think might find this, um, this topic rich and fruitful. Um, looking ahead to next week, we're going to continue with the American Revolution. Uh, Sally Haddon will be talking about lawyers in early American cities, loyalists as clients. Uh, and that'll be the same time, same place, your living room next Thursday. Thank you again for joining us. Have a good night.